Um, I'm grateful to the leadership um, and the eldership of the church for the opportunity to bring God's word to you this morning. Let me ask us to pray together um, before we turn to God's word. Our Father, we come now to think, hear, and learn from you, O God. We come that you would reveal yourself to us as you have done in ages past, as you desire that we might know you and glorify your name in our lives. We are conscious that when we focus on your word, O God, the evil one too is active to seek to snatch your word so that it has no effect upon us as we hear it and speak of it. Yet we rejoice that you are a mighty God. We rejoice that you give to us the Holy Spirit, that indeed by his power he will reveal Christ before us, causing our hearts and minds to hear attentively and indeed causing your word to cut into our hearts to the praise and glory of your name. Make your word plain, O God, and glorify yourself. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking a question. And it is a very personal question that I ask each one of us this morning. Do you know God? Do you know God? Now, in our human existence, it, we have shaped our lives by the pursuit of knowledge. In fact, when we come into the world, uh, no sooner than later, our parents usher us into a path of seeking to acquire knowledge that they believe is essential for our lives. And as we grow older, we begin to define and determine that which we believe is essential for us to live a life that is fulfilled and a life that is satisfying. And when we have shaped what that looks like, and what it is that we need to know in order to have that satisfying and fulfilling life, we pour all of ourselves into ensuring that we have acquired that knowledge and we are in the know. Yet there are a lot of things still, despite of that, that even if we don't know in life, and for all eternity, they will have no effect on us. There are things here this morning that many of us do not know, and it's okay. They have no effect on our lives right now, nor will they do so in the future. Let me give an example. How many here would be able to explain the computation of the wave celerity in a flume with rectangular cross-section. 
I can see by your faces that you're saying, what on earth did you just say? There's probably one, two, maybe three people that even understand that sentence here. And I will not bother to explain it. It's okay. You didn't know it when you came. You can go home not knowing nothing changes about your life. But as we turn to Jeremiah, and I invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 9, what we see God saying to us there is that God is the highest good of human existence and experience. As Jeremiah speaks here as a mouthpiece of God, what he contends is that the one thing that should be our joy, our pride in life, that which we should be showing off, that which we should glory in and seek to draw fulfillment and satisfaction in, is God. Jeremiah 9, let's read together from verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What is the point of Jeremiah's message in this passage? Essentially, it is that the knowledge of God should be our boast. No. It is not that the knowledge of God should be our boast. It is that God himself should be our boast. So Jeremiah is not sending us onto another path of seeking to understand and learn things that we can explain, he is saying to us that you must know God because God is the ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in life that there is nothing better, that there is nothing higher, that there is nothing greater for any of us to experience in our lives but God. God must be our post. In to quote Jonathan Edwards, the enjoyment of God is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. But how can you boast in God if you don't know him? Now, in our age of social media, we are very digitally connected. We could be here right now and engaging with people in the North Pole or, or, or Antarctica just via our gadgets. And somehow, that digital connection has ended up in a life where we have so many friends, isn't it? On social media, I mean, some of you count in their hundreds, or is it thousands of people that you are connected to. But if you were to take a moment 
and ask yourself of those 500, 600, maybe 1,000 connections that you have, how many people do you actually know? How many can you really say you know them? Sure, you probably know a lot about them. You probably know what they had for breakfast yesterday because they posted it somewhere. And you can explain a lot of things about them. But can you really say that you know them in a way that perhaps as a child you know your mother or as a mother you know your son or as a husband you know your wife or as a brother or sister you know your siblings. You see, when we are speaking about knowing God and, and when Jeremiah brings God's word to us here, we are referring to much more than just intellectual apprehension of God or casual familiarity. As the context of our passage shows us, what Jeremiah is speaking as a mouthpiece of God is that God must have the preeminence in our lives. It is that God must be supreme. He must have the primacy. He must dominate our lives. That to know God is to have God preeminent in our lives. That it is the emotional, and I use that phrase to refer to the combination of our mind, our will, and intellect, not in a loose way for which we use it, uh, in modern-day English, which merely refers to feelings. But I am saying that it is the emotional, that mind, will, and feelings coming together, relational experience of God that eternally affects us so that we live all of life in joyful trust and obedience to God. Now we come back to the question. Do you know God? You see, what makes this question even weightier for us to diligently reflect on this morning is the fact that, in fact, God's chief work across history, across human history, God has been working to reveal himself that we may know him. So again I ask, is knowing God the main pursuit of your life. Do you think it's a big deal right now as you are seated whether or not you know God? Do you believe this morning that it is quite essential to your existence to know God? I am obviously asking these questions to you who doubtlessly know enough about God. You can teach, explain, read the Bible and say a lot of things about God. But I'm asking you to reflect a little bit before you answer that question, before you casually dismiss it and simply say, of course I know God. Because the question is not whether you know enough Bible knowledge to recite or explain the Bible, it is whether in a real, personal, relational way you know 
When we come to Jeremiah, we see that knowing God is the most important endeavor of life. Yet why is it that so many are not pursuing God? Why is it that perhaps this morning, as you are seated here, you don't know God, and it doesn't bother you? In Jeremiah 9, we are given at least two reasons, and I want us to turn back to, to the text there. The first, in the context of the whole chapter, which we haven't read, but I will take you through it, is the fact that there is the deceit of godless religion that hinders many from knowing God. What do I mean by the deceit of godless religion? Essentially, that many, and, and in the context of our passage, the Israelites had such a great religious spiritual heritage of the God of the Bible, and yet that did not translate nor equate to knowing God. And in fact, as we notice in history and in life, oftentimes religious heritage itself becomes a hindrance to knowing God. Jeremiah is speaking to the Israelites. Who are the Israelites? Who are the Israelites? They are a people, a nation that God selected to reveal himself in a special way. They are a nation, a people that God entered into a covenant relationship with. They are a people who saw God at work in ways that we only dream of. Can you imagine walking in the middle of the sea with water on two sides? I mean, the amount of wonder that would be going into your, your mind about how water can stand still and allow you to walk through. The Israelites knew this. Can you imagine having a pillar of fire guiding you and keeping you warm in the night and a cloud as you are walking through the day to keep you cool and to assure you that God is here with you? It is to these people who had such great religious, spiritual privileges that Isaiah, that Jeremiah speaks to in our passage. And in chapter 9, this is how he describes the Israelites. Number one, he says that their hearts have no desire for God. Look at Jeremiah 9 and verse 14. I read from verse 13 for the sake of context. And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the bowels as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed these people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. Why? Because they have gone after other gods, despite their great spiritual heritage. What else? Look at verse 3 to verse 6. 
and see that their lives are lived in disobedience to God. We are told, they bend their tongue like a ball. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be aware of his neighbor and put no trust in another brother, for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. They refuse to know me. Their lives are filled with disobedience and transgression of my law. And then coming back again to verse 12 to 14, their hearts are, are not desiring God, their lives are being lived in disobedience to God, but are they even hearing God, when he speaks, we are taught, who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that that I said before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the bows as their fathers taught. And then we read earlier the punishment that God pronounces. What has happened? Well, when God speaks to them, they're not listening. They are not hearing him speak to him. His rebukes have no place in their ears. When he speaks to them in terms of bringing judgment in their lives, even that is not sufficient to make them to pause and say, where is God? Let's get back to God. So a people with great spiritual heritage and religious privilege don't know God and refuse to know God. Are you shaking your heads that the Israelites can be such a wicked people? Well, maybe you've done that too early. Because are we any better? Are we any better? If you've lived in Zambia, at least from 1991 or is it 1993, you've lived in a society that is generally influenced by Christian teaching. I doubt that there is anyone here who cannot recite the Lord's Prayer, for example. You've done it so many times in your life. You know the Word of God. Those of you who are young children here, living in homes with parents who are Christians, they teach you the Bible. They speak to you about the Word of God. You learn so much of the Word of God. Yet do you know God? 
Look at our own society. If you were to look at the headlines, uh, the news headlines in this week, what do you find? The kind of things that make you wonder whether that news is actually about things happening in Zambia or not, isn't it? This week has been especially terrible with news of sodomy. In a nation whose very constitution lays claim to the teaching of God's word. But forget society. Look inside your own heart. Did you come this morning with a desire burning to know God? Or are you just fulfilling a religious tradition? We go to church in the morning. We must be in church in the morning. What about your own life? And how you have lived in this week? Can we describe it that you have lived in trust and obedience to God? We have such great spiritual heritage. How many times have you sat in that pew and heard God plead with you to come in repentance and faith to him? And yet this morning, you are still not saved. Are we really any better than the Israelites? Our Lord warned of the horror of godless religion. Remember in Matthew 7, the Lord says that many will say on that day, did we not, did we not, did we not? And they will be claiming their religious pedigree. And Jesus says, I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So, a religious spiritual heritage can be a hindrance to knowing God. But secondly, and more particularly in the text that we read, it is an elevation of self, and this is what Jeremiah deals with when he says, Thus says the Lord, not, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. What is he saying? He is saying that godlessness is underpinned by an elevation of self that makes you view yourself in ways that you actually are not. That when you begin to feel that your achievements, your level of knowledge and its application to human life, your wealth and possessions are the source of security and satisfaction in life, there is no desire in your soul then to know God. Do you remember the story of the parable of the rich fool? His wealth? And what was his conclusion? I have so much. I'm going to build a bigger one and then I will store up for years to come. And Jesus says, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. What is the point? That these things can very easily become 
your sense of satisfaction and security and they substitute God. Isn't it true when you think about affluent societies in the world generally that there is a correlation between affluence and the decline of religion? Why? Because people begin to elevate themselves and bake their boast in who they are, what they have, and what they have achieved rather than in God. All I pray I pray this morning that you feel the need and agency to know God. I pray that you will not only feel and acknowledge the reality of sin that would keep you from knowing God, but that you would come with a keen mind, a keen heart, open to know God as we reflect a little bit about God. So, who is this God then that should have the preeminence in our lives? I want us to look back into verse 24 and notice at least three things about God and how he reveals himself. And it is thankful that God does reveal himself. And this is what he says, But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Listen, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Firstly, notice that God is majestic and make. He is majestic and make. You see, we would not know God unless and apart from him revealing himself. He says, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah, the self-existence eternal one. That God has no dependencies, no limitations in space and in time. That he is the first and primary cause of all things and of his own will he directs all things that he has created in the universe. And yet, he exists outside of all things. That's what he is saying in that phrase, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah, the self-existent eternal one. Listen to how the psalmist describes God in Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you steal them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. 
the north and the south, you have created them. Teber and Hamon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is a God that is revealing himself in Jeremiah 9. When he is saying, I am the Lord. It is all of this majesty. And yet, wonder of all wonders that this majestic God makes himself known to us. We've learned a bit about majesty this week, isn't it? Uh, and, and royalty with the funeral of the queen, right? And I recall, I think two weeks ago or so, hearing one of the Zambian journalists narrate her story of how she met the queen. And she says she was a little girl at Lusaka Girls and the queen had come into the country and she had the opportunity to greet the queen and the queen asked and said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to be a journalist. And then many years later in the United Kingdom as a journalist, she was invited into an occasion where the queen was. And as she was there, the queen walked up to her and asked her the question, did you become a journalist? And she said, yes, I did. And that story has remained with her because here is the queen. You don't go to the queen. The queen comes to where you are. You don't talk unless the queen talks, isn't it? There is a whole etiquette around how you relate to the queen. And the reality for her that the queen came down and shook her hand and spoke to her and took note of her and recalled a new 20 or 30 years later was such an awesome story. Of course, she discovered that, you know, it's not that the queen really remembered. It's that there is a whole machinery around the queen that took note of that fact so that they made her aware that the girl that you met some 20, 30 years ago is here and it would be nice if you could go out and greet her. And it was part of the arrangement, right? But this is not choreographed when it comes to God. It is a majestic being who is coming down to know you, to reveal himself to you. Look at um, what God says in Exodus 6. Let's quickly turn to Exodus chapter 6 to just appreciate this. Exodus chapter 6, and I read from verse 2 to 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. We looked at that, that majesticness. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. What is God saying? He is saying, I am majestic, and yet I came to your forefathers to make myself known. And as I was revealing myself, I revealed myself only to the limitation of what they could handle. 
I did not even show them the full extent of my majesty. God is saying that he is majestic and he is meek. Friends, God coming down this morning to say to you who is full of sin and rebellious to say, come, know me. Come and experience my steadfast love. God extending his hand towards yours. What will you do? Fold your arms and say, I don't want to greet you. I don't want to have any dealings with you. Or will you recognize and be overwhelmed by the reality of the fact that a majestic being who has no need of you and no dependency of you yet chooses to come and make himself known to you? He is majestic and yet he is meek. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? In Hebrews we are told that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And if you would appreciate and believe the truth of the fact that this is a majestic God who is meek, then you would come and draw near to him. He says, back to Jeremiah 9, he says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am majestic. Secondly, what do we notice? Who is this God? Not only is God majestic and meek, ensuring that we know him by revealing himself to us, yet God says of himself that he practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Notice, again, it's in the earth. It's in relation to you and I. And then he says, he practices these things. Now when God is saying, I practice or I exercise, what we know of God is that his deeds are equal to who he is. So who is this God? He is a God who is steadfastly loving. He is a God who is just. He is a God who is righteous. What he practices is an expression of who he is. Contrary to you and I, oftentimes what we do, our actions, are a complete opposite of who we are, isn't it? They don't really express who we are. Whether you can think of them in terms of sinful actions, yet we are saved. Or whether you can think of them of religious actions, yet we refuse to yield our lives to God. Our actions are not often an expression of who we are. But when God says that I am a God who practices these things, he is referring to how he relates and governs his creation. And unlike us, 
who he is and what he does has no separation. There is no division, no contrast between his character and his deeds. What a dependable God. That we can't think about his steadfast love and yet imagine that he will deal with us in a way contrary to his steadfast love. That his actions reflect his character and his being. What a dependable God he is. And so I have to ask, do you know this dependable God? Do you know this God who is what he does and who does what he is? That is why he can say further on in verse 24 that in these things I delight. In these things I delight. I practice them. Why? Because they are an expression of who I am. And I take pleasure in it. Why? Because they are who I am. I am not doing anything that is contrary to who I am as God. The idea of God delighting in this conveys to us that God desires to exercise steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. It conveys to us that God has willed and purposed to relate to you and I according to his steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. It conveys the idea that he has pleasure in exercising his character and his attributes. There is nothing of the character of God that in which he describes himself which is against who he is. He does exercise himself not of any other reason or cause other than himself. So God is not steadfastly loving or justice or righteous because we have somehow cornered him into a corner and now he has got no choice but to be steadfastly loving towards us. No, it is of his own volition, on his own purpose and will he chooses that in spite of who we are, he will relate and govern in accordance with who he is. There is nothing that you and I can do that will affect God in such a way as to effect change in who he is and how he chooses to relate with us. What an awesome God. What an awesome God. How can you not worship this God? To think for a moment that my sin, that my rebellion does not affect any change in how God chooses to relate to, him, to me. That he will relate to me in accordance with who he is. 
This should draw us, friends, to praise and worship God. And yet, having looked at these two things, we haven't even started to describe God. If you thought I was coming to an end, I haven't even started. And it's not me. It's in the text. Because God goes on to say of himself, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. He says of himself, essentially in this passage, that he is the steadfast loving God. The steadfast loving God. What does this mean? Well, this phrase, steadfast love, ESV translates it as steadfast love. Other versions will have it as loving kindness. Other versions will even have it as mercy. It captures at least three ideas that are combined into one in seeking to describe God. Now you see the difficulty of describing God, isn't it? That you can't even use one single word. You, you have to conjecture together different phrases that will get close to describing who this being is. So steadfast love captures for us at least three ideas. Number one, it captures that God is merciful, that he is a God of mercy. What do we mean when God says that he is a God of mercy? It means that he is a God who withholds punishment. He is a God who does not deal with us according to what we deserve. He is a God who is compassionate, who is forgiving. Let's look at two passages to augment that. Two passages. Jeremiah chapter 3. And I read verse 12 to 14, and then we will turn to Psalm 103. Listen to God speak in Jeremiah 3. He says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north, and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. What is God saying of himself? He is saying that I am a God who withholds punishment, who withholds my judgments against your rebellion and your sin that I have chosen to deal with you in a manner in which I can exercise compassion and withhold that which you deserve. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And I read 
from verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God is merciful. And I want to ask, do you know this God of mercy? Do you know this God? Have you experienced his mercy? There is one story in the New Testament that our Lord taught, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You remember that story? Our Lord says two men went to pray, one a tax collector, the other a Pharisee. What happened when the Pharisee arrived? What was he saying? I thank you that I am not like this tax collector, right? There's the elevation of self that is hindering him from knowing God. And then the Lord says, what was the tax collector doing? He says the tax collector, he couldn't even lift his head up to the heavens. Overwhelmed and enveloped in the presence of God and the reality of his own sin, he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. In which of those two went home knowing God? The Pharisee? No. It is the tax collector that goes home justified. It is the tax collector that goes home having known this merciful God. So I ask this morning, do you know this God of mercy? Have you beat your chest and bowed your head and pleaded with him, have mercy on me, a sinner? Well, steadfast love doesn't only convey to us the fact that God is merciful, it also conveys to us that God is a God of covenant faithfulness. Back to Jeremiah. Covenant faithfulness. Everything we are seeing here in Jeremiah is founded on the fact that God had a relation with Israel, or if you want to be more precise with Israel and Judah, at least in this context. It is the fact that he established a covenant with Abraham and that God is true to that covenant that he established with Abraham. Look at Deuteronomy 7 and verse 8 to 9. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 8 to 9. Hear the Lord speak. 
I read from verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord said his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What is God describing of himself? He is saying that I have chosen to reveal and to relate with men in a way of a covenant relationship. And that covenant relationship that I have established, I am true to it, to the letter. I am true to it, to the letter. And so you see steadfast love here being used in the context or in relation as well or in the same context with faithfulness to convey the idea of God's covenant faithfulness, that he is a God that keeps covenant, that he will certainly fulfill his promises and his commitments. One more passage to augment that, Psalm 106. Psalm 106. I read verse 1 and then I will skip to verse 45. Praise the Lord, or give thanks to the Lord, for he is God, for this, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then verse 45. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Do you see what is being described here? He exercises his mercy by withholding punishment. Why? Because of his covenant relationship. He remembers the covenant. And so his steadfast love also conveys for us that idea of covenant faithfulness. And then lastly, it conveys for us the idea of love. The idea of love. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, and the Lord <coughs> says... In verse 2, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have continued my faithfulness to you. What is God saying? He is saying that I exercise my goodness and kindness to men in spite of their sinfulness. 
and I have chosen to give my son so that in covenant relationship they might have him as their savior and have me as their God. That's love. And the ultimate description of God's love as we see it in the New Testament is what? It is a cross, isn't it? It is Christ being a substitution for our sin. It is that act of God where he gives his son as a substitutionary sin-bearing being so that God might uphold his covenant and you and I might know him. He offers his son. Why does God give his only begotten son as a substitute for your sin? Is there something that God has to gain from you? No. It is because he is a steadfast, loving God. It is because this is who he is. We don't ask and seek that Christ should come and die for us while we are still living in sin. God gives us his son that we might be drawn to him and that we might come and experience who he is. This is the God who speaks this morning. And I ask again the question that I have asked. Do you know this God? Do you know this God? Have you come to the experience of his mercy? Have you come to the experience in your life of his love? Have you come to the experience of his covenant faithfulness? You may ask, how do I do that? How do I do that? How do I come to know this God? Well, I want to end with the following. That what we have seen is God coming down from his majesty to make himself known to you. He is stretching out his hand to you. All you need to do is get a hold of it. Get a hold of it. Come to him if you have not known his mercy. Come to him in repentance and faith and seek out his mercy. Plead that he would have mercy. Do not imagine that God will overlook your sin. No, he won't. Because as we saw, that steadfast love, and I didn't have time to... Uh, open that up in addition, also has alongside it the fact that he is a God of justice and a, a God of righteousness. And they are all connected because if God is to withhold his punishment and exercise mercy to you, it is because he is a God who first and foremost that exercises judgment. And the reason why he withholds it is because he is a righteous God such that his steadfast love, his mercy, and his exercise of his judgment must be fulfilled at the same time. 
And how is that fulfilled? Well, when he withholds that mercy, rather, when he withholds that punishment, he takes it and lays it on his son so that he can be merciful to you and yet be just and true to who he is. So don't imagine that this is a God who is wishy-washy, who is simply a God full of pity that he's just going to say like a grandpa speaking to his grandchildren, it's okay, let them play even if they mess up and break everything else. No, he will not overlook your sin. And you must come to Jesus to experience that mercy. Secondly, I want to end by saying beware. Don't let yourself to be content with simply being knowledgeable about God. Don't be satisfied that you can recite the Bible. Come and know God in a real and personal way. And then I want to end by applying these thoughts to those of us who are Christians. What does all of this mean to you and me? Is your heart cold this morning and your love faint towards God? Would you come and drink deep of the steadfast love of God that it will warm your heart? Don't let sin keep you from knowing God. There is mercy and ending, love unfending. Come again to God, dear child of God. Come and experience this. Is your heart thrilled by the thought of such a steadfast loving God? Well, then I urge you to sing his praises and declare his steadfast love. How can you hold such wonder and beauty and love to yourself? How can you be content and satisfied that you have experienced and known this God and not be bothered that your neighbor, your schoolmate, your workmate does not know, has not experienced this God? Dear friends, the steadfast love of God must fire us up to want to declare and sing the praises of God that all men might come and know and experience for themselves this God of mercy and this God of love. Will you go out and declare his praises? Amen.